Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I belong to Generation X, and many of you are millennials, and it's my hope that our people can coexist in peace. Let me introduce you to one of the best features of Generation X culture, okay? This is He Man. And the masters of the universe. I am Adam. Prince of Eternia and defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull! That's He-Man. When we were kids, we couldn't get enough of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. We watched the show after school every day. We watched it twice on Saturdays. We collected the action figures. We, we, uh, when we were kids, we talked about him at school with our friends. And we, we drew comic books of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. We wrote stories and drew, drew pictures and made posters. And, and because He-Man was the best. There's almost nothing that he can't do. He can use his power sword and deflect laser bolts. He can punch the ground with one fist. And when he punches the ground, it creates this huge chasm that swallows up an army of bad guys. When he uses two fists and he punches the ground, He-Man can create this huge pit that can divert a river and prevent a city from being flooded. That's pretty great. I I remember in one episode... Castle Grayskull itself was in danger. Skeletor was coming at uh, Castle Grayskull and He-Man actually lifted up Castle Grayskull and he threw it so far away that Skeletor couldn't reach Castle Grayskull. Those are the stories of my childhood, y'all. And He-Man is the best. Okay? For Generation X, He-Man is like the ultimate hero. And I think one of the reasons we love superhero stories is because compared to superheroes... We feel small in a good way, okay? I would even go so far as to say we are in awe of these superheroes. You know, superheroes give us the ability to feel awe. And awe is, it's so rare, but it's something that we really need. And today we're going to ask like, where does awe come from? How do we recover a sense of awe if our sense of awe has grown dull? So we're going to look together at Habakkuk chapter 3, which we just heard read. This is um, the final prayer 
in the book of Habakkuk. This is where God is revealed as a kind of hero. And we're going to study this text under three headings, okay? The first heading is the prophet's medium. And then we're going to look at the prophet's message. And then we're going to look at our ministry, okay? So the prophet's medium, his message, and our ministry. So let's begin with a word about the prophet's medium, okay? Now here, what I mean is that this part of Habakkuk is a psalm, just like in the book of Psalms. This is uh, like a song. In fact, verse 1, Habakkuk says that these deeds are set to a tune, which is he calls the Shigian note. Now, why does that matter? Well, suppose for a second, suppose we were talking about a kid's like TV cartoon. Uh, suppose we were talking about a comic book. Suppose that the form of communication we're dealing with was like a, was actually a newspaper article or, or a tweet on Twitter. Suppose this was a Facebook post that your uncle shared that he found on QAnon. So each of these is a different medium and medium matters because each kind of story, each kind of writing has certain rules for how you interpret it. Okay. And a psalm is no different. This is a war psalm. Some commentators think that a, sh a Shigia note is a, is a, like this lilting back and forth, kind of a drinking tune. Like it's the sort of thing you would sing after a big military victory. And in it, God is the winner. God is the victor. He is a warrior. And the, one of the reasons I think we need to spend a minute talking about the medium is because in this psalm, there is some brutal violence attributed to God. Okay. In verse 13, Habakkuk says that God stripped an enemy leader head to toe. He stripped him naked to shame him and humiliate him. In verse, verse 14, he, he spears this leader through the head like he puts his head up on a pike. So let's pause here for a minute. Because I know people who have walked away from the faith over passages like this. I know people who've walked away from the faith over this. And, and, and some of us, we read a text like this today and we're confused and perhaps troubled by it. Or we hear uh, lazy preachers who glibly apply this passage to their enemies or to their political opponents. And it's, it's rightly troubling. Right? And, and we remember that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he said, you guys, anyone can punish their enemies. Even the sinners do that. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them. And when we hear Jesus say that and we compare that with this war psalm and the things that God does in here, we think, wow, like, can I support this? Can I, can I worship this God? Can I, can I introduce my friends and family to this God? Because he doesn't sound very Christ-like. You see, if we fail to respect the medium, if we don't pay attention to the medium, we're going to find ourselves troubled and revolted and, and even terrified of God. And that is not what he wants for us. That's not how we're supposed to feel as we read this. And that's not what God wants for us. And the thing is, once you cross that line in your heart where God terrifies you and he revolts you and you're troubled by him, it's actually super hard to come back. It's super hard to come back from that because one of, one of a few things will happen. Either once you cross that line and you are terrified of God, you will either bail on the faith or once you cross that line, you might stay in the faith but go through 
maybe just like endless deconstruction. It, and that's not going to really help you. And, or, but another thing that might happen is once you cross that line and you might just stuff your feelings, you bury it deep down, you ignore your questions and you learn to perform and you turn off the part of you that feels and asks questions and wants to learn and understand. And I want you to know we won't worship. We won't live for God if we don't fundamentally respect him, love him, trust him. Not really. That, do, that doesn't happen. And, and that's why the medium here really matters. This is not a newspaper article and Habakkuk isn't a journalist, okay? These are exaggerated stories. These are, this is a war song, a triumph song meant to be sort of like sung around the fire as guys are, you know, swinging their beer steins around the fire. That's what, that's what we have got here. We don't expect a, a war song like this to behave like a, like a literal history, right? Habakkuk is a songwriter. He's an artist. He's a war poet. And that's his medium. And so the medium really matters here. Now let's talk about the message. In this, in this part, verses 3 to 15, this big chunk in the middle of, of chapter 3, this is where the psalm sounds and feels like a superhero story. Okay, And what's interesting to me is that this doesn't appear to be a random list of God's deeds and God's God's powers. It seems to me Habakkuk has made some careful choices about what he's going to write and the, the, the things he's going to uh, attribute to God. So let's look at these verses, verses 3 to 15 in chapter 3, because Habakkuk feels that God is like the sun, for example, in verse 3. He spans from uh, Taman in the east all the way to Paran in the west. His, God's glory fills the earth like the sun. In fact, in verse 4, God's sun powers are, are sort of explicit. And, and it's like God has the power to like, send light blasts from his hands. That's pretty cool, right? And then in verse 5, God is described with these, like the powers of plague and pestilence. Like if he wants to, sickness and pestilence follows God. And as it goes on, uh, God has the power to cause earthquakes. Like in verse 6, he shakes the earth and the mountains crumble when he walks. In verse 9, God has the power over the rivers. If he pulls out his giant God bow and he shoots an arrow across the earth, a river is created in its wake. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty good power. In, in verse 10, God has power over the sea. And as he moves mountains and he moves the earth, it causes these huge tidal waves. And, and God's power even extends to the cosmos. Like, like Habakkuk describes God as being able to stop time itself by causing the sun and the moon to stand still. Like God is the best. And as if that wasn't enough, now there's a reference to the Exodus story where God's power is really on display. This classic story, one of Israel's greatest hits. And, and that's where Habakkuk ends his war psalm. Because God is like this warrior who went out against his enemies in Egypt, against Pharaoh. Right? He went out on a chariot with horses, Habakkuk says. He parted the sea. He saves his people. And his enemies were crushed and washed off the face of the earth. Now, it's not unusual for a war psalm to do this, to list the, the mighty deeds of God and the amazing powers of God and to go above and beyond to demonstrate that God's enemies will be defeated. That's not, that's not unusual. What's unique, though, in this 
particular war psalm is how Habakkuk has organized the psalm to sort of uh, diss the other gods of the surrounding nations. Like it seems like Habakkuk is trying to say something about God and about the gods of the other nations. Now, it kind of works like this. Suppose you watched a 1980s cartoon about a superhero who raises his magic sword and says, by the power of heaven, you'd be like, I've seen this before. Like, I know where you got that. That's He-Man. Or suppose you read about a, a like a god of thunder who carries a, a hammer and he uses that hammer to fly around and he uses it to protect his people, who in this case are Israel. If you heard that story, you'd be like, hey, I, I know where you got that. Yeah, it's Thor. Well, in the same way, Habakkuk's psalm here, his war psalm, is full of references to the gods and the mythologies of the surrounding nations like Egypt and Babylon and others. He, he makes reference to some of the things that the culture thought were the, were the responsibility of Utu, the sun god. And some of the responsibilities of Manat, the, the Babylonian goddess of death and the underworld, those are attributed to God here. There's reference to, to Set, who is the Egyptian god of plagues and pestilence. And w- when some people would have heard this war psalm read, they would have immediately thought, not of Yahweh, but they would have thought of Enlil, the Babylonian god who shakes the earth when he walks and he, the mountains tremble at his footsteps. Well, there's also Eresh Kigal, the Babylonian earth goddess. And there's Baal, the god of the storm, who controls the lightning. Okay, there's the, the Babylonian god of the seas and rivers, Dagon. And then there's, we've talked about Marduk. And Marduk is this warrior god who rides a chariot, uses a bow and an arrow to, to destroy his enemies, and he saves Babylon. And Marduk happens to also be the god of time. Well, we could go on and on and on here. But what Habakkuk seems to be doing is rewriting these very popular mythologies, removing and supplanting their gods and, and putting the God of Israel, Yahweh, in like on the throne as the ultimate God. Giving God credit for all these other stories as though God is like the God of gods. He is the super God. And, and if we love superhero stories because superheroes are so much greater than we are, how much more should we be in awe of a God who is superior to every other God? And if we in, enjoy stories of a hero who saves us from the bad guys, how much more should we be in awe of the God who saves us and rescues us by defeating the real enemies of sin and death and the devil himself. And that's Habakkuk's message. Yo, the the gods of the nations are nothing. The only God, the only real God is Yahweh. He's on the throne. He is responsible. He fights for Israel. That's awesome. So we've looked at the medium. uh, We've looked at the message. And our third heading is our ministry. Our ministry, okay? Uh, this this appears actually pretty close to the start of this morning's text, but I mean, I'm ending with it because I just think it's so crucial and so helpful. Would you come back with me for a minute to the first part of verse 2 in chapter 3? Okay, Habakkuk 3, verse 2. This, this actually might be the most important verse in all of Habakkuk. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. 
Let me read that again. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Now, we've seen Habakkuk will spend the next 13 verses reciting uh, God's awesome deeds. Okay, Habakkuk's mind is so full of them, he, he, stand, he stands in awe. He has no choice. That's the response, is awe, when he thinks about God's deeds. Let's pause here a moment. Can you remember the last time you stood in awe of something? Do you remember, I'm not, don't, don't answer this, but can you remember what it's like to stand in awe? I don't, I don't know what, what it was. Maybe you held a, a new baby and you just, as you looked at this amazing, helpless, glorious creature, you realized like, this is a miracle. Like, I didn't do this. I didn't make this. God, God, you did this. Thank you, God. Maybe there was some, like, some life milestone, some kind of great news that you got, and you realized, we didn't do this. No person, no human could have done this. This is God. Thank you, God. And, and so you were in awe. Well, my family experienced awe a few years ago. I'll never forget this. We were on vacation out in uh, Nova Scotia. There's a, there's a spot on the west coast of Nova Scotia where there's these islands. And you can only get to them by ferry. And um, one night, it was just us. We parked our RV there overnight after we got across on the ferry. And um, on one side of the island is this huge cliff. And we stood on the edge of the cliff and we're looking down and down below on the rocks and in the sea are these seagulls, more seagulls than I'd ever seen in my life, maybe a hundred thousand seagulls easily. And myself and the kids, we would take turns seeing who could clap and yell the loudest and scare the most seagulls away. And suppose it was Jamie's turn and he yelled and maybe a hundred seagulls flew off. Well, that's pretty impressive. Suppose, you know, daddy screams and yells and claps and makes a big fool of himself. And then maybe 500 seagulls fly away, but the rest stay put. Well, it was, we were in awe. We were in awe. The best part was we were just kind of up the coast from, from there. We were, we found these massive rocks overlooking the sea by a, a lighthouse and we climbed down the rocks and we're close to the close to the sea, and we realized, like, had the right wave come along, it would have washed us all out to sea easily. And the, the power of the waves next to us, it, we we were we stood there silent. We were in awe. But then, all of a sudden, we're sitting there looking out to the sea, and a family of seals swam up, and they just sort of floated there, bobbing in the sea, watching us less than 100 meters away, watching us as we watched them. And that felt like we didn't do that. We, we, no human made that happen. That was clearly God. I mean, for all we knew, they, they, these seals had never seen another human being. And we were overwhelmed by the greatness and the presence of God. We paused and we spent some time as a family in prayer, giving just giving thanks for that amazing moment. We were in awe. And I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. But I know that at other times in my life, and, and maybe you can relate to this, sometimes my sense of awe, it's not as sharp as it ought to be. Sometimes it's dull. I, I don't know if you realize this, but you and I, we have a sense of awe. It's just like any other sense that we have, and uh, you may never, never have thought of it before, but I, I think it works like this. Think of, think of this. If you remember, once upon a time, we were allowed to gather as families and enjoy a feast. Remember that? 
Remember before COVID when we were allowed to eat together? Well, in my family, when we would gather with the Moleskis, they would invariably ask Heather to cook the turkey because she's really good at it. Like she's at, it's, it's, it's almost a spiritual gift, I think. But it is, it's, it's glorious. It's awesome. When Heather cooks a turkey, I don't know what she does or what recipe she's following, but it is the best turkey. And the smell fills the house. It is amazing. And there are some of us in my family who won't touch food all day so that we have an appetite, so that we can experience this glorious thing the way that we're meant to. Okay, But something happens like clockwork every time we get together. There's a few guests uh, in the, at the gathering who might sit on the couch and they're visiting and catching up as, as they should. And there on the coffee table, is a, maybe there's a bowl of Doritos or there's maybe a plate of crackers and cheese and they gorge themselves on it. Now, is there anything wrong with crackers and cheese? No. Is there anything wrong with Doritos? Absolutely not. But what happens inevitably is that when it's time to, for us to come to the table and enjoy the feast, they're too full. Their taste buds are too numb. They have no appetite left. Even if they were to take a bite of, the, the, of Heather's turkey, they taste it and it's like, hmm, it's fine. Why? Because they still have the taste of snacks and Doritos and cheese and crackers on their tongue. And so their sense of awe is too dull now. They have no more appetite. Well, it seems to me that our awe of God works pretty much the same way. If there's a problem between me and God, and and I can't taste and see that the Lord is good, it's not because God isn't glorious. It's that I've numbed myself and I've desensitized myself with this, the, like, the spiritual equivalent of finger foods so that I can't enjoy God and I can't stand in awe of God the way that I should. And I just got to believe there are some folks here who, who know what that's like. And that's why Habakkuk's prayer here is so important. Because, because Habakkuk says, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. In, in Habakkuk's mind, these two ideas, these two concepts are joined. Do you see that? Do you see how those go together? I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. You see that? We can't separate those things. We can't separate the stories from awe of God. We can't separate those. If we only ever study God, if we only ever read the stories of God, and that is never expressed in awe, well, it's just information. And and if we try to live a life of awe and worship, but we don't actually have the stories of God's fame, well, that's not better. That's, that's just empty religion. It's not really our own. And so truth and awe are inseparable in the mind of the prophet here. You can't separate truth and awe. And what that means is that one of the most crucial things every believer has to do is we must immerse ourselves in God's story. That is the only way that we will recover awe, to immerse ourselves in God's story. And that is not like, that's not some job you've got to do. That's not some religious duty you've got to perform. That is your ministry to yourself. 
Okay, that's our ministry to ourselves. Think of it like this. God has called you to be a minister. He has called you into a ministry of awe. All right, hear me. You are a minister. You believe that? Now, how's your ministry? Honest question. God has called you to minister his fame to your own heart so that you'll be in awe of him. How's that going? Come back with me for a minute to verse 2 because Habakkuk has some questions. He's got some prayers to offer he, that he's going to model for us. Think of these as, um, as, as ministry training, okay? There are these three little prayers Habakkuk's going to pray, and I think it's going to help us in our ministry. I'm taking you to seminary now, okay? So the first prayer Habakkuk prays here, verse 2, is do it again. God, do it again. He says, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. Like, God, please don't let this be ancient history. You did amazing wonders in the past. You showed yourself to be the God of all gods. And, and, and God, we're just begging you to do it again in our time. Okay, let us see it with our eyes. Not just for the nations, but for us. For, do it for my own heart, God. Do it again. Well, Habakkuk has a second prayer in this section. His prayer is really, make yourself known. Make yourself known. What he says is, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And then the second, and so the second thing he asks is, in our time, make them known. Well, because they weren't known in his time. Habakkuk didn't live in a culture that values God's word anymore. The stories had been forgotten generations ago. And, and so by, by the time of Habakkuk, the, that culture is totally apathetic toward God. Could you ever imagine what it's like to be in a culture like that? Well, of course you can, because it's the same today. It's the same today. And so we join Habakkuk and we pray, God, God, there's so much unbelief, so much fear, so much distrust. Show us again in our time, God. Uh, make your ways known. Make your deeds known. Show us again what you've said and what you've done. Make yourself known. Well, the third prayer that Habakkuk prays here is have mercy. And I think that this is such a beautiful and helpful prayer for our ministry to ourselves. God, have mercy. In wrath, remember mercy, he says. Isn't that just beautiful? Like, God, I, I know we're not innocent. I know we are not all victims of sin from other people. God, you have every right to leave us in your wrath. Nevertheless, we ask that you would remember mercy. We, we, we ask this because you're not a God of wrath like the other gods. You are, you're more than that. You are greater than that. And so, Lord, have mercy. What a prayer. It seems to me, you know what? Praying for mercy changes us. Like it humbles us. It makes us, it drives us to repent. You know, it, it drives us to, to be kinder and more patient and gracious toward other people. You can't possibly pray for mercy for yourself and then turn around and treat other people with wrath. No, you can't possibly. This is the ministry that we are called into, my friends. We are, we pray that, that God would do big things again. We pray that God would remind us of his stories. We pray for God's mercy. Well, we, uh, we're almost at the end of Habakkuk. There's just one short piece left of the text to study. And we're going to do that together next week. Um, but spoiler, it is not what you expect. So far, when Habakkuk has prayed, God has responded. 
Habakkuk's third prayer here, he doesn't get an answer. You remember the first chapter when Habakkuk prayed the first time, he's like, God, where are you? How long is it going to be this way? How long before you do something? Well, God answered him then. Then Habakkuk prayed a second time. He's like, God, you are too holy to look on evil. So why do you? Why do you tolerate evil? Like, what is this? What's going on here? And God responded. But now Habakkuk prays a third and a final time. And this time he doesn't get an answer. The Avengers don't show up. He-Man doesn't show up to save the day. Wonder Woman doesn't arrive to take out the bad guys. There's no answer to Habakkuk's cry for help this time. And it begs the question, why not? Why not? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I want want to close with this. One reason, I think, if God answers Habakkuk's three prayers here, he's going to use people. He's going to use people that he has called into this ministry of awe, isn't he? He'll use people, maybe us. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of people right now in Hamilton who deserve wrath, myself most of all. And somebody is going to cry out for mercy for them. Why not us? God is going to use somebody to make his stories known again to the people in our city and the people in your orbit. Why not you? And and if God repeats his mighty deeds in our day, if he does it again, he's going to use somebody to make it happen. He's going to do that through somebody. Why not us? Why not you? Why not me? Well, that is God's way, isn't it? When we pray, God, do great things again. God, reveal your truth. God, have mercy. Man, watch out. Watch out what you pray for because the Holy Spirit might just take that prayer and he might say, he might tap you on the shoulder and say, sure, I got a great idea. Come with me. We're going to push you to work. So one reason that the that Habakkuk's prayer here goes unanswered is maybe because you are the answer to this prayer. But I think a second reality for us to notice is that uh, because Habakkuk's prayer goes unanswered here, it actually leaves the door open for the answer to come in a way that he couldn't have imagined later. Like the answer to Habakkuk's prayer would come. Because eventually God would come and God would show that he is in charge of the storm. And and Jesus, when he walked the earth, he performed all sorts of wonders. But of all places, scripture tells us that it's on the cross where Habakkuk's prayers were finally and ultimately answered. Okay, Habakkuk prayed, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Well, what, what greater act of mercy is there than for the Son of God himself to hang and to die on a cross as the substitute who turns away wrath? And so the cross of Jesus is where God answers the prayer in wrath. Remember mercy. And, and before that, Habakkuk had prayed, God, I have heard of your fame, but they haven't. Make yourself known. And again, we can see Jesus dying on the cross, which the Apostle Paul says is a demonstration of God's righteousness, and the Apostle John says is a revelation of God's love. And so the cross is where God answers Habakkuk's prayer and makes himself known. And first of all, Habakkuk had had asked God, God, I am in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. Do it again. 
Well, what greater deed could God do to reveal himself again than he has done in raising Jesus from the dead? He's done it. Habakkuk's prayer is answered when God not just canceled and defeated Satan's sin and death, but triumphed by causing Jesus to be raised from the dead three days later, and he's alive today. These prayers are answered. Jesus has done great things, and he invites us to stand in awe. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.